Let us pray. Lord, thank you for the voice to which has lifted us to this place of celebration. And now in the hour of preaching, give this your servant the power to preach. Give us ears and a heart that would receive what your word has to say. We'll forever give you the glory and honor for you are worthy of such. For when we think of all of your goodness and all that you have done for us, our soul simply cries out hallelujah and thank you for saving me. We honor you today in the name of Jesus the Christ we pray. Amen. Thank you women's choir for blessing us in this point of celebration. Give God some praise for the women's choir. I want to lift up verse 6 of the fifth chapter of the Song of Solomon as we dig into a little further this poetic expression of Solomon as we read through these eight sonics to which he's given us. We are at sonic number five. And I want to join together all seven verses, but I want to use as a launching pad the response of the bride to her bridegroom upon his return to enter into celebration again. Verse 6, I opened to my lover, but he was gone. My heart sank. I searched for him, but could not find him anymore. I called to him, but there was no reply. Love testimony is what this bride provides for us in these initial seven verses. And yet, from verse 8 to 16, that testimony is continued but arguably, one might suggest that chapter 5, as I told you earlier, once again, we are in the mode of shifting from dream to reality. We left chapter 4, which was a reality in celebration of the wedding. Now, it seems as though we have shifted back to the dream mode in the narrative. And we have to wonder how much time has lapsed between verse 1 and verse 2. If scholars are correct, some time has passed since the celebration, the culmination and the consummation of the wedding in chapter 4. And we have now noticed that the groom has returned from being at a distance from some time from his bride. And he returns with quite high anticipation to engage as well as embrace and enjoy the love of his bride. Look at the second line of verse two as that gives us an indication that he's excited about seeing her open up to me, my sister, my darling or love, my dove, my perfect one. He, he is there crying out 
knowing that he wants to engage and embrace and he wants to enjoy the love that brought him to the place of entering into a space of matrimony. But there is further discussion when we look at the text that Solomon very well, because of his time away, might be in the doghouse. Simply because he is standing on the outside of the door instead of on the inside of the door. He uses lines that has gotten him access before and certainly they are about to work again. But we must ask, has the marriage entered a rough spot? Are they now faced with the winds of adversity? Are they being troubled in their paradise? We go back to chapter 3, verse 1 through 4. We've seen her in this state of uncomfortableness before. In fact, it was a dream, and yet I think again we are back in a dream mode when we begin at verse 2. And yet he cries out again on this evening, trying to redeem himself with that word, open unto me, my sister, a word of endearment that in ancient time would have been used by a husband of his wife, open unto me, my darling, my love, open unto me, my dove, and open unto me, my perfect one. Give me all that you have given me before. But I'm wrestling with the suggestion by Bob Turnboyle and his wife Yvonne that maybe it is something we should certainly take into consideration. And that is in Bob Turnboyle's article entitled What Your Wife Really Wants, he says that we as husbands often take for granted what he calls the four T's that wives always want. It keeps them happy. And it keeps them, most importantly, assured that they're not in this relationship alone. The first T is time. He contends that every wife wants time. She wants space in your calendar, which reassures her that she is valuable to you. If there's some truth there, I hope the sister would say amen. The second T is talk. She wants talk because talk enables her to connect to you. But further, talk is a way that women use to relieve stress between you. If there's some truth to that, sisters holler back and say amen. amen. The third T is tenderness. She needs tenderness because that is what nourishes and feeds her soul on a consistent basis. If that's some truth to that, sister, say amen. amen. And the fourth thing is touch. Non-sexual touch, but effectual touch. If it's only received as a pregame warm-up to sex, then she'll begin to feel used like a marital prostitute. So she's interested in being appreciated, but yet with a sensual but affectionate 
touch. And I kind of wonder, did Solomon fail to pass the 4T test in the text? That's what I seem to get in reading verse 2. But when I read verse 3 through 6, I then must ask, as Yvonne Turnbull has raised in her article, what your husband really wants. Did she, the Shunammite woman, failed the 4C test of a husband. In other words, she says every husband wants his wife to be, number one, a cheerleader. A cheerleader because a man thrives on his wife's approval and praise. In other words, nobody else might not think that he has made a valuable contribution or what his work is of us importance, but if his wife affirms that it is, he's all right because he wants her as his cheerleaders. Brothers, what few I got, if that's true, say amen. The second C is that he wants his wife to be his champion. His champion because his wife's respect and encouragement lifts his spirit and increases his self-worth. In other words, he needs to know from you that he got it going on, even if he really doesn't have it going on. But as long as he believes that you think that he does, he without question will name you as his number one champion because the one person he wants in his corner thinks he's got it going on, believes he's got it going on. Brothers, if you want a champion, say amen. His, his third C, what she calls, he wants his wife to be his companion. Companion in the sense that although he may have many good friends all around him, he wants his wife to be his number one best friend. Someone that he can spill his self to, he can tell everything, no holes barred without shame or regret. Brothers, if you feel like that's what you want, say amen. You better think about that before you said amen. You should have thought about that. <laughs> Number four is compliment. C-O-M-P-L-E-M-E-N-T. Not C-O-M-P-L-I-M-E-T. But compliment. He needs her to complete who he is. It's a necessity. Without her, he feels incomplete because as Genesis 1 and 2 contends, there is something missing in his life. But yet when he finds, says the Bible, Proverbs, a man who finds a wife finds a good thing, he finds completion in who he is in reference to helping him arrive at the destiny. When two walk together, they get to a destiny on the journey a lot more happier and in the mode of better completion. And yet in chapter five, as it begins, it begins with a strange twist, a less celebrative gesture than what we encountered in chapter four. 
In fact, verse 1 of chapter 5 actually belongs to the end of chapter 4 because it's the exclamation point to the celebration we find in chapter 4. It says verse 1, I have entered my garden and my treasure and my bride and I have gathered with my spices and I eat honeycomb with my honey and I drink wine with the milk. Here's what he says very simply. In that first verse he says I find here to us complete gratification. Notice each line in the poetry begins with the lead off, I have. I have come into my garden, I have gathered my spices, I have eaten my sweetness, I have drunk my pleasure, I am satisfied. And he ends verse one with another invitation to his friends, enjoy your life once you find that one person with the fullness as I have. That's what he says in that closing line of verse one. He says to his friends, O lover and beloved, eat, drink, you, yes, drink deeply of your love. Might be we may conclude that Solomon says, if you're not finding love where you are, you might want to re-examine where you are. But the end of verse 1 is another invitation to that friend, as I said, to invite them to experience the same level of gratification that Solomon is contending that he has. But here's a Here's a monkey wrench thrown in the mix. We kind of wonder when we read the, Solomon, the Song of Solomon, did it happen before 1 Kings chapter 11 or after 1 Kings chapter 11? Now to you that might not mean much, but when you read 1 Kings chapter 11, at least in the opening verses, there is some strange description in reference to Solomon's lifestyle that we kind of wonder, could he have possibly given the advice that he gives in the eight sonnets, having the reputation that he has in 1 Kings chapter 11? Amen. Thank you, baby. And here's what it says. It says, now the king Solomon loved many foreign women. Besides Pharaoh's daughter, he married women from Moab, from Ammon, from Edom, from Sidon, and from the Hittites. And the Lord had clearly instructed the people of Israel, you must not marry them because they will cause your hearts to turn to their gods. Yet Solomon insisted on loving them anyway. How many? He had 700 wives of royal birth, 300 concubines, that just means extra women there for his own pleasure. In fact, they did just that. All 1,000 turned his heart away from God. But here's a clue. When you read in Song of Solomon, I mean in uh, 1 Kings 11, 
And verse 4, the scripture says, in Solomon's old age, they turned his heart to worship other gods instead of becoming completely faithful to the Lord his God as his father David had been. And then it tells you Solomon began to worship everybody's God to the point that God says, this is what I'm going to do. Because you turned your back on me, I'm going to take the kingdom away from you, but I won't do it while you are living. I wait until you die and when your son ascends through the throne, then I will take it away and give it to your servant. Thus becomes the interest of how we get the split kingdom, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And Rehoboam, if my memory serves it correctly, Rehoboam ends up with the southern kingdom, which is the two tribes that uh, Solomon's son ends up leading, Judah and Benjamin. And Rehoboam, which is Solomon's servant, ends up with the other ten, ten, ten uh, tribes in the north, which causes in the split, and it's because of a judgment, and that is they turn their hearts away from God Solomon and when he did that he led the entire nation to do the same as well it might be that this came after the advice after or arguably could it have came before could Solomon, as some had suggested, been in a midlife crisis and realized that after all of these women, I need to find me one woman and settle down. And he finds this Shulamite woman and decides that she is without question the one woman that indeed could make his life what he desires it to be. But when you read verses 1 through 6, there's a spiritual lesson in this text. The practical lesson is Solomon comes home and he reaches to get into the house where his bride is and he experiences something that he never anticipated, rejection. He's rejected. Look at the text closely. It says he's rejected to the point where the woman, verse 2, I slept but my heart was awake when I heard my lover knocking on the door. Open up to me, my darling. Open up to me, my treasure, my love, my perfect one. Open up because my head, I've been traveling a long ways. Or it could be that the weather is tumultuous. He says, I've been traveling, but my head is drenched with dewness and my hair is damped by the night. But, but look at verse 3. Her, her man, her, her, her lover, her king is knocking on the door to come in and be with her. But verse 3 says she came up with an excuse. Verse 3 says, but I responded, I have taken off my robe. Should I get up and dress again? I have washed my feet. Should I get them soiled? My lover touched the latch says verse 4, to unlatch it. And my heart thrilled within me. I got excited and I jumped to open the door. But when I jumped to open the door and I reached and I noticed he wasn't there. It's got to be a dream. 
I'll tell you why I know it's a dream. Because verse 7 says that the watchman of the night found her and abused her, assaulted her, and took away her veil. I know it's a dream because you would not dare do that to the king's bride lest you suffer the consequence of death. But here's the spiritual application. How many times has the king of kings showed up to knock on our heart's door? How many times have the king of glory showed up to have intimacy in terms of worship and celebration with us and we came up with excuses Lord I would but I'm tired because I've been working all week long Lord I would but I'm just not in a worshiping mode today Lord I would but I just don't feel like you feel and yet when we finally decided okay since you're here I might as well celebrate you anyway we wake up only to discover that what we had hoped to enter into was not there. But I know that this just can't be God because when God knocks on the door, even when I have not stood up to open my heart unto him, he didn't disappear. He stayed right there and he kept on knocking until I opened my heart and we ought to be happy this morning that God doesn't turn around and leave us because we don't receive him into our heart but at least he stays there and stays there because he wants to have intimate fellowship with us and even when we give God our excuses he never denies us his excellence and here she is she says, should I get up and put my dress back on? I done took my clothes off. Should I get back up and dust my feet again after I have washed them? Look closely at the text because she is challenging us. The text is challenging us. The spiritual lens is challenging us to question whether we are entering and we are experiencing an intimate, personal, joyous relationship with God. Here's a couple questions. It's causing us to ask, have I or do I enter into the garden of intimacy with God often? Because if all your joy is only on Sunday morning, you might want to revisit your walk with God. But how many people here realize I don't just need Sunday. I got to have every day with Jesus. I need him in the morning. I need them at noon time. I, I need them in the dinner time. I need them at lunch. I need them at the job. I need them everywhere that I go. I need my intimate conversation every single day. Lord, I need to know that you're here. How many of you cry sometimes? Lord, give me a sign. I know that you're here. I know I believe it, but can you just show me? And when God shows you that he's right there, there's a joy that cannot be explained with normal words. I just get excited knowing that I've been around him I'm walking with him I'm talking with him I'm excited because I need to have him every step that I take every day but I gotta ask do I have him everywhere that I go I gotta ask 
have I or do I recognize and gather the spices that contribute to the pleasure of my relationship with God? Remember, that's what he says in the text, that in verse 1, he's gathered the spices and he's enjoying, here's my spices, every morning when I get up, I got to gather the spices that I've been able to gather from God and the spices is his joy and the spice is his grace and the spice is his happiness and the spice is his mercy mercy and the spice is his peace and the spice is his power and the spice is his completeness and the spice is his accompaniment and you ain't got to shout I'll shout by myself but I thank God for the joy that he gives and the peace that he gives and the comfort that he gives and the love that he constantly gives and the power to overcome and the strength to persevere and the mind to continue on. He gathers along with me the spices that we have in our communion with one another. I gotta ask myself the question, have I gathered spices this morning? Have I or do I enjoy the honey that flows from the word? Here it is right here. Go back to verse 1. He says he eats honeycomb with his honey and he drinks wine with his milk. Do I enjoy the honey and the wine that flows from God's everlasting word? Psalm 119, 103 says, How sweet are your words to my tender taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. That's the word. Psalm 19, verse 10, the word is sweeter than honey from my honeycomb. Job 23, 12, I have treasured your word more than food. Jeremiah 15, 16, I found your words, God, and I ate them, and they became to me joy and delight in my heart. What you think about the word this morning? Is the word that sweet where you can't live without it? Here's another question. Have I or do I drink from the spirit wine and milk word quite often? See, because in the Song of Solomon, it's a metaphor. It's a metaphor that highly suggests to us that the spirit of God introduces us to the meaning of what it means to be filled with the spirit of God. In Jeremiah 23, 9, the Bible says that the word of God can make you feel like you're drunk when you experience it. When I read that, I was like, oh, shoot, what you mean by being drunk? And then my mind quickly ran to the book of Acts chapter 2. Because when the Spirit of God descends upon you by the power of God, you can feel like a drunk man, but a drunk man not intoxicated in a negative way, but a drunk man that's high on the glory of God and the peace of God and the power of God and the love of God. That's worth getting drunk on every single day and don't know about you but I need my fix every morning from the milk of God and the spirit of God and the word of God every single day I got to get drunk on him I get drunk on him because when you get the spirit of God in your life something happens Number one, the Spirit of God can lead you to an ecstatic experience. Here's what I mean by that. I know, I know when we come into church, we ain't that fired up. 
But when the spirit of God starts moving, it can fire you up to the point where when you wanted to sit there in that seat and have those arms folded and have that hand looking sophisticated, but all oh, when the right song and the right prayer and the right word comes down your aisle and finds your row and touches you where you are, you can't just sit there. You can't just lean back, but you might want to lean back and stand up and throw your head back and shout glory this is the word for me it'll give you an ecstatic experience we, we become we become we become so sophisticated that that when folks stand and when folks shout and when folk raise their hand and when folk run around the church we kind of wonder what are you doing in fact we might contend it don't take all that to celebrate God well maybe you don't know their resume you don't know their journey you don't know what they just came through you don't know what they going through you don't know what they're dealing with at the moment it may not mean that to you but to them when they are sick and they've recovered from their sickness when they are homeless and yet they find a roof over their head when they made a breakthrough and God keeps breaking through it may not mean all that to you but when they think about the goodness of Jesus and all that he keeps doing for them their soul cries out hallelujah it leads them to an ecstatic experience yeah, 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 this, this writer says, when I drunk my wine with milk and I ate my honeycomb with honey, it, it gave me an ecstatic joy, a, a, a joy, a, a peace, an excitement, an experience that I've never had before. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. It'll lead you to an ecstatic experience. Watch this. But it'll also give you an extraordinary joy. Now here's what I mean by that. Uh, there have been times, and, and I, I know I'm going to get a witness, so let me hold on to my podium because we might all shout on this word right here. There have been times when you think about in reflection where you are and you think about the price you actually did not pay to get there and you think about the opportunity you did not work to deserve there and yet here you are in a space where you know that it had to have been divine origin, a part of it. It had to have been God opening a door. It had to have been God putting someone in your path. It had to have been God leading you. And you just sit there and think about how undeserving I am of this moment, but it gives me an extraordinary joy. Helps me realize if it had not been for the Lord on my side, and I'm not the only one who know that I'm enjoying benefits that I didn't deserve, but God used someone else to pave the way for me. And as a result, I'm the beneficiary of the labor that they put in to make it happen for me. It gives me an extraordinary joy. Here's what the word of God says in Acts chapter 13, verse 52. said that the disciples were filled with the Spirit and they were giving a joy 
Maybe one of our problems in church is we so dull sometimes is because we don't remember how joyous we ought to be. Enter into his courts with praise and thanksgiving. You can't be worthy and thanksgiving and you don't have joy. And here it is. The writer is trying to tell us that when you engage in walking with God, he gives you some joy. But watch this. The Holy Spirit also can lead you into the release of your spiritual gift. You, you can discover what God is trying to do in you and through you when you allow the Spirit of God to work within you. But the milk, the milk, the milk that the writer refers to, talking about the basic elementary aspects of scripture, the meat is a more advanced level, as 1 Peter 2, 3 says, we should admonish, in fact, he admonishes us to desire the sincere meat, or sincere milk of the word, but then there's again a twist in verse 2. And the twist is, as time elapses, he gets rejection. How do we handle rejection from one another when we don't anticipate rejection? It's as if he is saying unto us, be prepared that every now and then, all, all marriages, I think he argues, go through a period of difficulty. I know we want to appear spiritual, that Jesus is always at the center of all our marriages and that we never have conflict, we never have issues, we never have disagreements, we don't holler at each other, we don't fight at each other, we don't cuss at each other, we do everything holy, we pray about everything. You know you're lying, your mouth will go and admit the fact that you're lying, you don't pray about everything. But we go through those moments but they are growing pains. That's how you learn each other. Then you learn what buttons not to push. Because if we're not careful, we learn what buttons to push and we hold those in our arson so that when we get mad again and we want to win the fight, we push the right button. Here it is. Because he is wondering what's wrong because she says, I rejected him. Look at the text, verse 4, my lover tried to unlatch the door and my heart was thrilled. I jumped up to open it and my hands dripped with perfume. Mainly, he touched the door, ancient practice. He had what we would call spices on his hand, dazzling up whatever he touched so she could smell the fragrance of who he was, that she might be invited to open up and receive him. And when she goes to touch the door, all she does is touch the fragrance. But God does that for us. That's why I told you he never leaves us. Even when we are there and we don't open up our hearts, he leaves fragrance on the door. On the door of our heart. How do you know that, Pastor? Because if you are still alive to get another chance to open up the door the next day, he left some fragrance on your door. Here it is. Here it is, and I'm almost done. She said, my fingers, they drip with lovely myrrh as I pull back the bolt. I opened my heart. I opened to my lover, but he was gone. My heart sank 
I searched for him, but I couldn't find him anywhere. I called him, but there was no response. Oddly enough, Solomon gives us in this text a spiritual principle. Never have your heart door bolted when God comes to pay a visit. Sure, when we read the New Testament, they were locked behind closed doors after Jesus was crucified and says John, he walked right through the wall. And God can do that. Walk right into your heart whether you have it bolted or not. But there is something about the invitation. We were, we were talking about that this morning in Sunday school when God sends out an invitation. He sends out the invitation and comes to knock on your heart's door to let me in because I got something special for me. I only want to make one point. God is knocking on someone's heart door today for one reason, because you don't love him like you used to. And he's knocking that we might rejoin in our communion together. See, in Revelation 3, the church at Ephesus, Jesus said about this church, you are a wonderful group of people. Check this out. You stand for the word of God. Your worship is in line. You stand against false teaching like the Nicolaitans. You cross all the I's and dot all the T's in terms of being a demonstrative people for worship and representing Christianity to the public. But I still have one criticism against you. You just don't love me like you used to. This is when your relationship becomes a ritual. When we only come to church out of habit. And we only participate in doing what we do because of habit. And we do it because it's a part of church life. And Jesus says, I don't want that. I want a relationship with you where when you do it, you do it because you love me, because I love you, and we want to be together. I want you to shift that. I want your ritual to become relational. I want to be in relationship with, with you. And then there's a final thing. He says, I want us to have intimacy in church because I want to move you from being watchers in the pew to being worshipers in the pew. Because some of us just come to church to watch in the pew. We, we just watch in church as it goes by, just walk on by, dun, 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 just walking on by. And Jesus said, I don't need you to watch church. I want you to worship in church. I want you to celebrate why you are here. What's the use of coming to church if you ain't going to come to enjoy the Lord who is your strength? If you're not going to come to pay glory unto him that woke you up in the morning and that started you on the way. If you're not going to give due diligence unto him that keeps a watch over you all night long that lets you sleep and lets you slumber. If you're not coming to thank him who gave you the food on your table 
table and the clothes on your back and the job that you have if you're not going to come to celebrate the mercy of God and the grace of God and the goodness of God then what's the use of being in worship but is there anybody in this place today who just simply came to say Lord I just want to thank you I'm just excited about how been and how good you've been unto me I realize if it hadn't been for your mercy that woke me up this morning if it hadn't been for your love that watched over me all night long if it hadn't been for your peace that gives me the understanding if it hadn't been for your grace that saved my soul I come to church because I want to celebrate if it had not been for the goodness of God on my side I don't know what I would do without the favor of God and the peace of God and the joy of God if you know God's been good to you if you know God's given you some favor if you know God's watched to you throw your head back and say yeah 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 hey That's a love testimony. Testimony how good God has been to me. Come on, stand to your feet and give God some glory in this house today. This text leaves us with a challenge. And the challenge is what you gonna do with your worship. This text challenges us not to be pew dwellers, but to be praise inspirers. Because when someone else looks at what God has brought me through, they'll get inspiration. If he did it for him, if he did it for her, he will surely do it for me. We are challenged in this text. What we come to church for? Just simply to blow away the time? Or do we come to thank God for time? For the time he's given us to be in the house of worship. We got to give some appreciation and some thankfulness to God for his goodness. Did you hear? Did you hear the prayer request? Have you noticed something? Your name won't on the list. So you missed your cue right there. You, you should have been shouting, Lord, I thank you. Because I realized it could have been me. Did you hear the story? This young lady loses her children. Do you understand if you are a parent in this house today and you got your children, you can reach over and touch them. You ought to be thankful. That's enough to make you shout right there. Solomon came back and all he wanted to do was to spend time with the woman who made him happy. Here's a piece of theology going to shock you, but listen to it closely. All God wants to do is spend time with those who makes him happy. That's you. That's you. That's you. That's you. And let's, let's look at this. 
It's not like God asks us for a whole lot. Let's go back to let's go back to Exodus. Six days you can do all your stuff, but on the seventh day, I just I just want some time with you on the seventh day. That's all I want. I want us to develop our testimony together because I believe God loves when his children worship and celebrate him. And what does he do? He rains down. Not all blessings are monetary. How many about how many here know not all blessings are monetary? Because you can have all the money in the world and your health is shot. What good is all the money in the world? You don't have any health to enjoy it. But some people just want a peace of mind. Some people just want to be loved. Don't get quiet on me. Everybody want to, you ought to be want to be loved. And here's what the text calls us to do. Today, God says, I want to love you. And here's the joy. I don't care what baggage you bring to the, okay. So you shut your, so you shut your heart to me. It's okay. I knew you were going to shed it anyway. Bring it to me. He says, I want you just the way you are. You don't have to wait until you think you're righteous enough to accept God. You don't have to wait until you think you are walking in the right way enough. Come as you are. Watch this. If anyone in this, in this room today, if anyone in this room today believe that you had to be righteous for God to receive you, take a seat. That's about what I thought. We all know we could never, this is the meaning of grace, unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor. I didn't do anything to get the grace of God. You didn't do anything. It's God's loving kindness. And that's where we are today. That's where this story is. He just came back and wanted to share some time with the lover of his life. And God says on Sunday morning, I just want to share some time with the lovers who love me. That's all he wants. That's all he wants. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I want you to listen attentively. The Spirit of God is calling you right now. Don't, don't walk out of this building today if you are not sure that Jesus Christ is not the Lord of your life. Today, let's settle that question without any doubt at all.